Good morning. By the providence of God, I'm here this morning. Uh, Deb and I were on vacation for two weeks, and on our way up 95, we encountered a, a dump truck that got in my way, so pushed me off the road, and by the grace of God, Deb and I are fine, and <laughs> my name has changed to Rick Crash Bartholomew. I think I've had like four accidents in the last several years here. Um, but by the providence of God, I'm here, and I'd like to thank the session for this opportunity and thank our God for this great opportunity to bring a message from his word. I'm very excited about the message this morning. It comes from a familiar section of the word, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And uh, in that particular section, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, encounters the teacher sent from heaven, Jesus Christ. And the teacher from heaven... Well, he just makes the whole world for Nicodemus current upside down. Uh, let me read the passage and we'll get to it. Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, <clears throat> Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, You, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended from heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that, every, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, your word is power. It is the power unto salvation. It is the power to sanctify the Christian's life. Lord, I pray that as the word goes forth today, that you will forgive him who speaks and hide your messenger and bring forth your message. I pray we will give attentive ears to those who hear, that we may hear and be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may know the perfect will of our God. 
We pray your blessing upon this time in Christ's name and to your glory. Amen. I believe very strongly that the Reformed faith and their approach to biblical teaching and their sound and systematic teaching is the best and foremost way to study and to know the will of God. And for his church, Jesus Christ's church and his people, to be occupied in knowing his will and loving him should be the preeminence of what a church should be. If today's church would set her mind and heart upon the thought of God and the truths of his word, then they would have a proper concept of the salvation plan and a guide to practical Christian living. I believe that the church's moral and intellectual decline finds its roots in the perpetual false teaching of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. It is today as it was in Israel when the prophet Amos said, and he warned Israel, there is a famine in the land for the word of the Lord. However, the person who comes to the true and right belief of God and his word is relieved of the ever-present burden of death and his eternal destiny and many temporary problems that hinder us on this side of heaven. Do you feel the weight of this burden? Does the thought of eternity perplex your mind? Do you know the only truth that will set you free? I hope I can answer some of these questions today. Sadly, there are so many in the church today that believe in a Jesus that is not in accordance with the scripture. I read somewhere that in the churches of the United States, there is at least 12 different Jesuses being preached from the pulpits in this country. The plan of salvation they hold to is not consistent with the plan that is clearly laid down in the Bible. They believe in a different Jesus and a wrong salvation plan. Therefore, the church is filled with moralistic bondage on one hand, and on the other hand, moralistic liberty. There is mass confusion and uncertainty on how people can truly be delivered by grace through faith from their sin. Yet, the message from God's word is a simplistic message. Jesus tells us that the truth will set us free and provide everlasting life and power to live a life that honors him. So here is the simple message of the gospel. I'm just going to give a quick little simple message up front before we get into our text. A righteousness which is required by a holy and perfect God has been revealed in his son and lived out perfectly in his obedient life. This righteousness is the sole ground and foundation of our salvation. And we also find the forgiveness of our sins by Christ's atoning work on the cross. The Father is fully satisfied with the Son's payment for our sin and his righteous life that he lived. These are ours only by grace, through faith alone. In our text today, a Pharisee named Nicodemus is about to have his religious world turned upside down. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Why at night? The text doesn't tell us. 
But we can deduce that maybe he wanted to be alone with Jesus without an eruption. Or maybe he just came to Jesus in the cover of the night because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. However, one thing is certain, that a sovereign God is drawing Nicodemus to the source of all wisdom and all understanding and the source of salvation. I'm reminded that in John 6.44, that no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. Nicodemus gives Jesus a very respectful greeting. He calls him rabbi, which means teacher. Then he adds, we know you have come from God as a teacher, and also because of the signs you have done could only be done by God. Now remember, the Jews were very impressed with signs and with miracles. And in Mark 8, verses 11 through 12, it tells us, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Clearly, Jesus is not focused on the signs or the miracles, although they, are not, or they do have a purpose in his ministry. As we know, even the devil can perform miracles. Jesus' purpose was to seek and to save that which was lost and to do the work of his Father who sent him. Jesus' response to Nicodemus was, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you were born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Where did that come from? <laughs> Jesus gives no recognition to Nicodemus, also about his comments or anything else. However, he presses into the conversation with Nicodemus what he truly needed and what we all need, spiritual rebirth. Why? Every one of us here are born spiritually dead apart from the Holy Spirit's work of the new birth. Notice Nicodemus' response. How can a man who is old enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Surely Nicodemus is lacking spiritual understanding into this very important gospel teaching. Remember, Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. When I say that, and Jesus said that, Nicodemus was the master teacher of Israel. And with his position and knowledge comes a big responsibility. As John Calvin stated in, John, in his commentary on John 3, surely Nicodemus ought to have had understanding of the first principles. Calvin went on to say, for what religion have we, what knowledge of God, what, what, what rule for living and what of eternal life if we do not believe that a man is renewed by the spirit of the living God? Jesus continues in verse 5, Unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Water is symbolic language here for the cleansing Jesus' first recorded miracle was a sign, uh, and a sign in the Gospel of John was to turn the purification jar at the wedding in Cana, the water into wine. 
symbolizing that his blood would be the cleansing agent that everyone who believes would need for the forgiveness of their sins. Without the Spirit doing the cleansing and the purifying work of regeneration in the new birth, one cannot see the kingdom of heaven. This is stated more plainly in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He, Jesus, saved us on the basis, not on the basis of deeds we have done, which are done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So all who are born again are made into new creatures in Christ by the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, Jesus comes down to Nicodemus' level, and he says to him plainly, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In John 1, verses 12 through 13, the Lord's word has this to say, but as many as receive him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Please notice from these verses, there is a birth of the flesh, there is a birth of the spirit. In both cases, it is God who initiates the one who is born is merely a recipient. Watch this because we will continue to see more of this unfold in verses 7 and 8, where Jesus expounds upon the teaching to Nicodemus that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus and us that unless we are born of the Spirit, we are not children of God, and he is also telling us that it is not our will or our choosing that makes all this happen. It is solely the will of God. The salvation of God is all of God, and all by his glorious grace. From our election before the foundations of the world to our calling unto the new birth, and even the gift of our faith. Every Christian experiences two resurrections. Let me say that again. Every Christian must experience two resurrections. One in the new birth, which is called regeneration, and another at his bodily resurrection unto eternal life. In other words, a spiritual resurrection and a bodily resurrection. Those who have received these two resurrections escape the second death of eternal death in hell. Blessed, in Revelations 26, it says, Blessed and holy is he that is part of the first resurrection. On, this, on such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests in God, a priest of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. Nicodemus' response to this profound teaching is, how can this be? Remember, here is a man that is basing his salvation on fleshly teaching and man-made commandments which rely upon religious performance, which, seen, which are seen in 
uh, fleshly obedience to outward ceremonies and rituals. And sadly enough, there are many in today's church who believe in a salvation that requires of them to meet a certain standard. Are to make a decision to accept Jesus or reject him based upon their own will instead of the clear teaching of God that he is the one that is seeking and saving those whom his son has come to save. These false teachings go against the truth of God's word and can be damnable for those who believe them. The Bible teaches very clearly that a man is dead in his trespasses and sin. It is very important for us to understand that physically dead people and spiritually dead people can do nothing to reconcile themselves to a holy God. The Bible teaches that no man seeks after God, no man understands God, no one, not one man is righteous, no, not one. This is the condition of man according to the word of God. How can a dead man will anything? Unless God makes him alive in Christ through the new birth of the Holy Spirit and gives him the mind of Christ that he may be made new and understand the things of God. In our reading today from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, that Al read, why did God have his prophet, his holy prophet, go to a graveyard of dead people in the valley and preach? And preach the living word that makes alive the dead. Why? Because we are all dead and without hope. We are all unable to raise ourselves from our deadness unto spiritual life. This life only comes to those whom the Father gives the power through the Holy Spirit, who gives ears to hear his message and eyes to see his salvation in Christ alone, and the ability to believe his incredible work on our behalf. Again, in summary, the reason man needs to be born again is that he is spiritually dead. And unless the Spirit breathes, as the Spirit did to the bones in the valley in Ezekiel, new life into them and uniting them with the Spirit of Christ, they remain spiritually dead. The unbeliever is nothing but a walking zombie. He is alive in the flesh, but he is dead in the Spirit. Unless God makes him alive in the Spirit, he will never see or enter the kingdom of God. Are you born again? In verses 10 through 13, Jesus is admonishing Nicodemus for his lack of understanding of these things. I would like to draw attention to the fact that Nicodemus did, I mean, Jesus did not find common ground with Nicodemus. He rebuked him. He rebuked him because he was a teacher that should know better. Remember, when God imparts knowledge to anyone, they are responsible for what they know because it bears witness against them. And we are all accountable before God to the level of knowledge that we understand about his word. What a man thinks, a man is. What a man confesses, he should believe. 
In Matthew 12, 37, it says, By your words you will be justified, or you will be condemned. As we approach verses 14 and 15, and this is the gospel right here. As we approach these verses, Jesus will teach on the doctrine of faith. Jesus looks again to the Old Testament for his instructions to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. Here, Jesus states, just as Moses was lifted up, as, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Here Jesus is speaking specifically to Numbers 21, verses 6 through 9. The Israelites were grumbling against Moses and God. So God sent poisonous snakes among them. These snakes bit many of the people, and many of them died. So coming to their senses, which is a picture of repentance, they come to Moses to ask for help. Moses sought out God, and there's another type of, Moses is a type of Christ, an intercessor between God and man. Christ is our intercessor. Moses, Israel's intercessor, comes to God, and God commands Moses to lift up a bronze serpent. The object that was killing them is now the object to be lifted up to bring healing and forgiveness. Jesus uses this Old Testament experience to parallel with himself. Just as the serpent was lifted up, so that all that looked upon it would be healed of the poison that was in them, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? So that, me, so that maybe that we may be healed of the poison of our own sin. For all who look to Jesus in faith and, and find forgiveness of their sins. Again, we see that Jesus provides, that God provides the means of salvation and the power needed for the work of repentance and believing, or we will all die in our poison, sinful, corrupt hearts, hearts which condemn us. It is by faith alone that you are saved, through grace alone. And we are all saved because it is a gift of God. Consider this. God had Moses lift up this bronze serpent, the very object that was poisoning them and killing them, and then he had it, and then he had it lifted up in order to heal them, right? It was the very thing that was the image of their death now becomes the image of their what? The object of their salvation. Now Christ, the object of our faith, was lifted up for the cure of our sin. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we may become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was lifted up as a sin object in order to be the healing for our sin-poisoned hearts. This is amazing love. This is amazing grace. This is the gift of God. Our final verse in our text today is probably the most quoted verse in the world, but also one of the most misunderstood. 
For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I'd like to ask two questions of this text. First, who does God love in the world? Does this mean every human being, past, present, and future? The second question, how does God show his love for them? Is it a partial love for some and a full and effectual love for others? Who does God love in the world? Thankfully, the answer is here in our text today. Those who believe in his only begotten son. Notice, only those who believe in the world will have eternal life. From our text today, we learn that only those who the Father has called, regenerated through the Holy Spirit, are born again, and they alone will believe. Only those will believe. And remember that this is not of ourselves, but is a gift from God. This means that they have been united to Christ, loved and adopted into his eternal family, and have been given the gift of faith to believe in Christ and all he has done for them. God loves the world of all kinds of people who believe in his son, whom he has sent to save them. And he will condemn those who do not believe. That's what the verse tells us. In Acts 13, 48, it says, for as many as he has ordained believe. Notice from that verse, there is a limited number of people, as many, as God has ordained, will believe. How does God show his love to them? Now that we have determined who God loved, let's look at how he loves. He loved them by sending his son to do for them but that which they could not do for themselves. He lived the perfect life required to satisfy the Father's righteousness, and then he imputed that righteousness to their account as if they lived the perfect life. The same son picked up the cross and carried it to Calvary's hill to suffer and to shed his blood and to die for the sins of the world of all who believe. This is the love, this is love, that he sent his son, his only son, to lay down his life for sinners such as we. This love is an everlasting love. Let me repeat that. This love is an everlasting love. And since it is from God, he will never give up on you. This love has no exit doors. God will love you all the way, all the way to eternity. This is God's salvation plan. From start to finish, he accomplishes what is required. Perfection. From start to finish, a holy, perfect God must start with perfection. That's why the Holy Spirit must make you a new creature. He has to start with perfection. And he must end in perfection. And that perfection is the Holy Spirit in you unto glory with Christ forever. It is all of God and not of man. This is amazing love. In Philippians 1.6 it says, He that began a good work in you will complete that work until the day of what? Of Christ. This is our blessed assurance. We cannot lose it. We cannot mess it up. 
because it began with Christ, it began with the Holy Spirit making us new, and whatever God starts, he finishes. What a blessed insurance, assurance that is, that I am in Christ and nothing can separate me from his love, nothing. God does not lower his standards to meet sinful man. He commands perfection, and yet this is impossible for man to do. So God does for all who are his what they could not do for themselves. This begs a question. Does God command something that is impossible for man to do? Yes. God said, be perfect, for he is perfect. I cannot, you cannot. God says what? Be holy, for he is holy. You cannot, I cannot. He commands us to what? To love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. I cannot, you cannot. Why does God do this? Because God, does God require of man what he knows he cannot do? Yes, he does. Why? To display his glorious grace and his loving, saving help in saving hopeless creatures such as you and I. And to draw us to the source of power and ability to do these things that he has called us to do. And to make us realize how weak and powerless we are to save ourselves. This is the gospel, the good news from God that he so loved not that we loved him, but that he called us and loved us and he sent his son to rescue us from our sins. These sins condemn us. One sin condemns us. Any sin condemns us to the everlasting fires of hell. And why does sin condemn us? Because only perfect people go to heaven. And only those who are in Christ are perfect. Yet, they are still sinners. For many years of my Christian life, I thought that as long as I did enough good things, on one hand, surely a loving God wouldn't condemn me. So if I did something bad, I would do 10 things good to make up for the bad so I could appease God. What vanity. I was on a treadmill of performance most of my Christian life until I came to this truth that Christ has done it. It's done, it's finished. Get off the treadmill of performance and start being what Christ has called you to be. You have been set free. So if you were here today, and maybe for the first time, that salvation that is not of, of man but of God, it is not of your choosing, but it is of God choosing. And that it is impossible, you know it's impossible to save yourself. God may very well be drawing you to himself right at this moment. 
Because really, when, some, when God starts drawing you, he initially makes you mindful of your what? Of your inabilities, your sinfulness, and your what? And of your possibility of spending hell. Spending an eternity of hell. In hell. Brothers and sisters, if you are awake in Christ, alive in Christ, and he is drawing you right now, do not harden your hearts. Do not delay. Is Christ calling you today? Then come to him and believe. God, does God open up your mind to give you understanding, to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of your faith? This is God's salvation plan, all by his grace. Not man's willingness, not man's work, not man's goodness, not man's merit. To God alone belongs the glory and the honor. For his salvation plan is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. You know who will be in heaven? Those who believe in God and his salvation plan through Jesus Christ and, and them alone. Those who believe. You know who will be in hell? Those who don't believe. Simple, simplistic message. And Nicodemus struggled with it because Nicodemus kept getting in the way. He kept thinking there was something that we must do. And it's only natural in our human economy of thinking that we think there's something we must do to get something. What if something's already been done for you? And all you have to do is believe it. And to believe it is a gift from God. It's about being, not doing. The doing comes after your what? After the being. First the faith, then the faithfulness. First the identity in Christ, then the performance in Christ. Please, brothers and sisters, don't get it backwards. That's a damnable teaching that someone tells you do you have to do something for your salvation? And there are people standing in the pulpits calling themselves preachers of God's word who are controlling and manipulating and embellishing the word of God to control the congregations to do what they want and damning them to hell because they're telling them something they must do. It's been done. We are the most peculiar people on the face of the earth. We should be the most joyous people on the face of the earth because we have everything in Christ. And nothing can separate us from Christ. Nothing. Not your sin, past, present, future. Not your even doubting. When you are in Christ, you are his all the way. He started it. He will finish it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that our salvation doesn't depend upon our feeble inability to please and to honor you or to keep your law perfectly, but to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who has done all things for us. What we could not do, he has done. The life we could not live, he lived and the death we deserved, he took. 
Father, help us to find peace and joy and rest and knowing that our salvation is in Christ and in him alone. We pray in Christ's name with a thankful heart. Amen.